I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 37 of Caro Pop. The best mastering engineers develop loyal followings among people who appreciate great sounding music. And that certainly is the case with this week's guest, Chris Bellman. If you go on the Steve Hoffman Music Forums, you could find the Chris Bellman Appreciation Thread, which runs 15 pages long. If you frequent other audiophile sites, it's pretty common to read raves about the Bellman cut of this album or that. The 2021 Record Store Day edition of Beleza Tropical came with a sticker boasting a killer lacquer cut by Chris Bellman. Seasoned listeners know who this guy is, and they like what they hear. Bellman began his career at Alan Zentz Mastery in Los Angeles and worked on many releases for the Casablanca label, then known for dance acts such as Donna Summer and Funkadelic, as well as Kiss. He also mastered some Motown records, including a mighty big hit from Rick James. In 1984, Bellman moved to the then-new Bernie Grunman Mastering, where he has worked ever since. He and legendary mastering engineer Bernie Grunman, a previous Carol Pop guest, take turns using the vinyl cutting room, and sometimes Bellman remasters albums that Grunman previously mastered, such as Joni Mitchell's Ladies of the Canyon and Crosby, Stills & Nash's self-titled debut. Bellman also has remastered albums previously mastered by Kevin Gray, another renowned LA-based engineer. Does Bellman listen to these other versions before he does his mastering work? Are there telltale characteristics to the records he masters compared with those by Grunman, Gray, and others? Bellman had a major success mastering Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which meant that every artist who sounded like her was sent his way for years. Years later, he was asked to remaster that album. How much of his original work was he inclined to change? Amid the current vinyl resurgence, Bellman has been especially busy remastering albums by The Who, Neil Young, and others. He got to use a surprising source when he put together the expanded reissue of Tom Petty's Wildflowers, and yes, he got excited doing that one. Then there was the day that the original master tapes of the first five Van Halen albums arrived on his desk. Chris Bellman is a big Van Halen fan. Ten years later, Eddie Van Halen wanted him to master them again. Who usually hires Bellman? Artists or labels? How long does it take him to master an album? How important are the pressing plants? What does he think of colored vinyl? And what, aside from black vinyl, does he think sounds best? Which artists have gotten involved in the mastering process? And what the heck was going on when Rick James cut Super Freak? What does it mean when someone is acting like a newbie in the studio? How does his mastering work on the latest albums by Spoon, Jeff Tweedy, and Elvis Costello and the Imposters represent a different side of the business for him? What kind of gear does Bellman have at home, and how does he protect his ears? You'll learn this and a lot more in this Carol Pop conversation with Chris Bellman. Here we come now, here we come now, here is the hardest cut. So welcome. I'm really, I really appreciate you having, being on here. Um, your name has become this trademark. I keep seeing all the stuff about the Bellman cut and uh, like at R Record Story Day. I mean, I got the Everly Brothers, uh, Hey uh, Doll Baby, and that was a, a Bellman cut uh, remastered by you. And I got the Beliza Tropical, which is, which I've had on CD for years, but like the sticker of it was said like Killer Lacquer by Chris Bellman. Um, and on the Steve Hoffman forum, there's a, 12 page Chris Bellman appreciation thread. 
Yeah, I don't know whether you like when you're having a bad day, you just kind of go and click through that. Is that something you thought you would something you would be known for when you started doing this, that it would become like this kind of trademark sign of quality? No, I mean, it's a strange phenomenon, this this vinyl resurgence, which has been going on for what, how many years now? But, uh, you know, when I started in mastering production, if you will, um, it was, uh, what year was that? It was, uh, 80, no, it was 75. And so vinyl was the primary thing. So that's how I kind of learned got my chops is, is, is I jumped right into the middle of doing all this vinyl production and then fast forward to now or fast forward to maybe what, five, six, seven years ago when vinyl started coming back heavily, um, I was in the right place at the right time because we had we have a fabulous cutting system and uh, we kept it going even though we weren't doing a lot of vinyl at the time. But then it it just came back. So right place, right time. Bernie and I just do piles of vinyl all the time. But you do a good job with it, obviously, because people hear the the cuts and there's like, oh, this is this is definitive. Um, and it's interesting to me, sort of the idea of like whether because I'm always sort of torn on this myself. If I have like an old copy of something or I could find an old copy of something like, which is going to sound better, the original one from, you know, say the seventies or the one where you've taken the master tapes and use your current technology to come up with the best version possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen, I've seen the opposite happen where people like the original better than whatever I did. And, you know, that's cool. You know, it's apples and oranges. You're listening to some record that you're intimately, uh, familiar with over years and years, if not decades. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in and makes something different better or not is not really the question. Sometimes it's just different and you don't like the different, um, or they don't like the different. Uh, so it happens. Um, but I think it's, it's kind of a, a somewhat of a slam dunk, dare I say, in that uh, pressings are a lot better than they were uh, back in the day, most of the time, not all the time. Um, and our systems are so much better. We can pull more information off of the sources uh, and get a much more detailed cut, which lends itself to the end product, the record, uh, in a much better way. So you kind of, if you do your job right, you can kind of come out with something really really spectacular and a lot of times beat that original it all the all the stars have to align of course you know vinyl is a, is a moving target at best so <laughs> you, right. kinda, you know the mastering has to be good the source has to be good the plating has to be good the pressing has to be good the shipping to the people has to be good and if it all comes together you get something great but a lot of times that doesn't happen yeah, I, I always wonder with those early pressings, um, because I was buying vinyl back back then as a kid in the 70s and then more so in the 80s uh, before CDs came around. Um, and and I always wondered, like, sort of how close to the source those vinyl pressings were. And, I, and I'm assuming they were sort of variable depending on, like, were you pressing from a copy of a copy of a copy mm. or that sort of thing. And it's hard to... So I have some, like, original stuff I picked up and it's just totally thin and muddy. And other times you'll get something that kind of pops out of the speakers and you'll be like, oh, that one sounded good. It happens, yeah. You're We're at the mercy of the sources that we're given. But it seems like when, when you're doing something 
it's closer to the source than maybe those, you know, whatever generation pressings you would have gotten, you know, in the mid seventies or eighties or it's, something. Like that. It's possible. It's definitely possible. Um, I'm trying to think of a great example of that. It was uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It was uh, something we worked on a couple of years back, senior moment. Uh, we were remastering his catalog and we came, it came time to do Wildflowers, you know, one of his huge records. Right. And we discovered that the math, we, we sought out all the master tapes uh, and all the analog tapes, but we found them, but they weren't assembled, which means no one ever used those tapes in an assembled format to cut a piece of vinyl with. They, it transferred in, uh, they probably put it into a, a DAW system and created digital whatever and cut from those, those files. So we set out to re to assemble for the first time after what, three decades, uh, those original tapes. And we, we accomplished that. And then we wound up doing that record from the original half inch master tapes, uh, for all the formats that we did digital and vinyl as well. And it came out really nice. Um, even Tom noticed that it sounded much different than, than the, the digital release. Yeah. The stuff I heard from that, that collection sounded great. And also there was just so much material, you know, some of which you hadn't heard, but, but the record itself, which is a pretty, you know, long record, it just, uh, it sounded fantastic, but I didn't realize that that hadn't been pressed on vinyl. I mean, I guess because of when it came out it was like what, 94 or something like that, that, that it wouldn't maybe, maybe it would have been more of a CD, you know, oriented release. Cause there wasn't as much vinyl then, but, but the I idea think, that it actually wasn't on analog then is kind of mind blowing. I think, he, well, it was on analog. I mean, it came out on vinyl, but it limitedly, but it, but the source that was used to create all that right. was apparently digital. Um, so because the tapes weren't assembled, so that it was just a simple deduction that they never used those tapes in, in a cohesive way. Now, is that exciting for you when you discover something like that and you're able to hear the version of the album in a way that no one's heard it before? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you just, we just, Ryan and I, uh, Tom's co-producer engineer, we just look at each other and go, Wow. What happened? Well, let's do it the right way this time. <laughs> you were at Alan Zentz mastering until like 84. And I'm not sure if that's when he retired, but you moved to Bernie Grunman mastering. Um, what, what did you learn going from Alan to Bernie? Like how did, how did what you did change? I don't know if it changed. I just think I, you know, I was maturing in my craft, if you will, you know, and I had 10 years of experience at that point when I joined Bernie. So I definitely knew what I was doing. It was just a matter of how well uh, I could do it. And some of that, of course, is you're at the mercy of your equipment. Some of it's you're at the mercy of the projects you're working with uh, or on. Um, I don't, each of, the, each of those engineers uh, had different, very different approaches. Um, I would say, I kind of bridge the, the gap, if you will. I'm kind of sitting in the middle between a, a Bernie Grundman and a Alan Zentz. Uh, I kind of take what I feel is the best of both of those 
and try to combine them and then do my own spin on it, of course. Were the, were the studios themselves sort of physically similar, the equipment similar, or was it, uh, did you have to have like a learning curve? Like, oh, here's a, this whole new room I have to work with now. Yep. All of the above. Uh, Alan had Neumann systems. Uh, Bernie, we do not have any Neumann in the building. We're uh, Scully systems with custom electronics on everything. The consoles are custom built. Everything is custom at Bernie's. Uh, so it's just a, a kind of a different flavor. Um, I came to appreciate what, what I was working on over the years. I didn't really know, you know, at the beginning, other than it was just radically different. And I had to, I had to learn it, but worked out to be great. Cause especially when I hear back some of the projects I did on Alan's uh, system versus what we do now, it's, it's pretty different. Um, in a lot of ways, resolution-wise, et cetera. There was definitely a learning curve. It's hard to say what the, the actual differences were to quantify that. I mean, was one better than the other? Well, no, not really. When you get to that level, it's like, well, what do you like today? You like the Lamborghini or you like the Ferrari? <laughs> right. It's kind of it's like that. You, you, it, the differences are really subtle and... And you never really have the comparison, to be honest, you know, unless you have the exact record from the exact source pressed at the exact same plant. And that just doesn't happen. So do you and Bernie each have your own rooms at Bernie Grumman Mastering? Uh, yes. So it's not uh, like you're just sort of taking turns scheduling and like it's, it's similar equipment, different rooms. Uh, we have our own our own rooms in terms of uh, digital production but we share the vinyl room because one, we don't have enough equipment to do, to, to put everything back into to other rooms. We had, we had one lathe in the old studio. When I started, we each room had one lathe. Um, and actually we had in Bernie's room. There were two lathes. So we had four active lathes at the time when we were on sunset. And then 10 years down the road, we got out of that facility and moved to where we are now. Um, and it's a huge facility. We each have uh, our own digital suites, if you will. And then we dedicated one studio for vinyl because that was in the era where uh, we weren't doing a lot of vinyl. So we thought, well, there's no need to put it in all the rooms, which cuts down on a lot of electronics in each of the rooms. But the vinyl room got really busy. So Bernie right. and I are constantly arm wrestling each other on schedules to try to get into that room. So we've, we sort of have specific times uh, throughout the week that uh, we are automatically scheduled into that room. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering how that would work out. You're like, no, I got, I got this. No, I have this one. They're both important. Yep. <laughs> are you, are they going to, is he going to build another vinyl room or is this okay? No, uh, it's really co not cost effective to do it. Oddly enough, it's strange for me to say that mostly because of the equipment. Um that kind of equipment and custom made stuff is few and far between. And it's extremely difficult to build more at this point because a lot of the parts don't exist. Um, so, uh, no, we're dealing with it as it is. We may make a production room and move this one of the lathes into a production room so that we can cut in two different places simultaneously. So we can get out a little more product if we had to. Do you two consult with each other? Like say, Hey, could you give this a listen? See what you think? This one's kind of snumping me on occasion, not too often, but yeah, there, it's nice to have another opinion. Sometimes you go, Hey, what would you do with this kind of thing? Uh, but not too often. 
So you've been working for uh, working at Bernie Grunman Mastering. So with Bernie Grunman since 1984, mm-hmm. um, and then before that, you were with Alan Zenz. Where did you Where did you grow up originally? Like, how did you end up at uh, Alan Zenz? <laughs> it's a long and involved story. <laughs> That's all right. It's a long involved podcast. Go for it. <laughs> Um, I was going to college and I was creating a major that I didn't, that didn't exist. Uh, I didn't know about recording. I didn't know about the recording arts. I knew nothing. Um, I was a a semi-accomplished classical pianist from a very early age and, um, electronics was sort of a, uh, another interest. So I was trying to figure out how to combine them in school. So I, Instead of following a program of which there was only an electrical engineering program at any given school, I didn't really, I, I didn't, that didn't interest me, but I wanted to um, create a major. So I, I went and found classes at multiple schools that piqued my interest. And um, so I wound up getting sort of a double major, if you will, in major in uh, music and electronics. Um, and then uh were you in the LA area at that point or like, where yeah. were you able to do all these different I, classes? I was in LA. So, I mean, it, I was going to junior colleges. I went to UCLA, I went to USC. I just found stuff that I drove my counseling people nuts <laughs> because I was just bouncing all over the place. Um, so, but as luck would have it in a summer time where school was on a hiatus and I was just working, I somehow, and this is, pre-internet. So I don't really remember how I found it. Maybe it was a flyer, but I found this guy that was taking a few people under his wing, uh, an engineer, a recording engineer and teaching them, uh, you know, the, re- the, the rudiments of, uh, of recording multi-track recording. And so, uh, he took like five or six people and we'd go into Capitol records in the middle of the night when it wasn't being used most of the time. And then he'd bring in his son's garage band and we practice basically he show us you know the flow of of signal flow through the board and you know blah 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 the whole thing and we each wound up doing a mix of of a couple different songs from this garage band <laughs> so we were learning and i was like now this is interesting because i'm i'm combining music i'm combining manipulation of electronics and it's all coming together and i'm like aha I, I succeeded sort of, this is what I, I need to do. I want to be a recording engineer. So the end of that class, fast forwarding through about a year and a half, uh, he booked a session at a mastering studio, Alan Zenz, to show us the end, how the end product happens. So we each got to witness and help cut a 45 of the mix that we had done. Hmm. And we all got to walk out of the room with it. Well, that's cool. Me, me being uh, nosy and everything, I overheard that the owner, Alan, was um, in the midst of building a recording studio, but he had this mastering business, which I didn't know a whole lot about. So uh, after the class, I hit him up for a job <laughs> right there. I said, OK, I want to be in on you know the ground floor of the studio because that'll be, you know, I could work my way through. And he said, well, keep in touch. You know, we're still in the planning stages, blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, uh, it took close to a year for that studio to get built, um, 
from that moment. So I was back at school. I get a phone call from Alan one day saying, Hey, you know, we're still on tap for the studio. I, you know, I've got your name top of the list here uh, for helping out. Um, but I need help right now, part-time in the mastering business. Are you interested? And I said, well, yeah, part-time I could do that. So I started up doing part-time work, grunt work, answering phones, taking orders, doing tape copies, um, and sort of just doing that. And he was insanely busy. He, 80% of his, his production was coming from a, a, a label called Casablanca records, which was Neil Bogart. And, right. um, it was the era of this like was the summer of, and all of that. Yep. Parliament, Funkadelics, all, all this stuff that kiss all this stuff coming off of Casablanca. So we were slammed. And so I started learning more about that part of the business. I'll fast forward here <laughs> through this. And, uh, uh, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. It's good. The law, the, and, and then, and then he, he gave me a raise and said, I need you more, you know, three quarters time or whatever it was. So I started working more and more. Well, then uh, summer came to an end and I was like, I got to go back to school uh, to finish this thing up. And he goes, well, I need you full time. I'm like, oh, <laughs> what do I do? Decision, music business job full time or school? Well, I picked the job. There you go. And, yeah. And now at this point, were you, were you mastering records in the studio for him or not no, even close? I was still hanging out. I was still learning. Um, and then, uh, about uh, six months later, I was cutting a little bit of few little things. I had learned how to, to sort of manipulate the lathe. And then one day, um, I come in early for a session at like a nine o'clock session and Richard Perry is booked for a, a single. Hmm. And the engineer doesn't show up, the guy that was supposed to be doing the session. And I'm there, Richard's there, and he's like looking at his watch and going, well, I got a string date at 10 o'clock. I got to get out of here, you know, and it's like 9, 10 right now. Can He say, he points to the lathe and he says, do you know how to run that thing? And I said, mm, kind of. He goes, great, I'll EQ it because he knew the board and he was friends with Alan. He says, I'll do the, I'll do the EQ and I'll figure it out and you cut it. I'm like, Oh crap. What do I do? <laughs> um, you know, take care of the clients always right. Take care of the client or risk possibly losing my job and messing up the lathe or doing something stupid. Cause I, you know, I'm not experienced. So I said, okay. He talked me into it. Well, we're halfway through that session and Alan walks in and he goes, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, okay, crap. Guess I'm going back to school full time. And Richard covers for me. He says, don't can his ass, uh, Alan. You know, he was just doing what I asked. He was trying to help me out. Blah, 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 blah. You know, he was being cool. And he, Alan finished the session. The other engineer didn't show. And um, as he's walking out the door, he says, he screams to Alan. He says, don't can him. You know, <laughs> he was just helping me. He was doing the right thing. And then so he, he leaves and goes off to his string date. Alan signals me into, into his office and I'm like, oh, okay, here it comes. And he's got this funny grin on his face. And he says, look, he says, if you're going to start taking sessions, I guess we better show you how to do some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Oh, that's a little backwards, but okay. Yeah. That might be helpful. 
So he didn't can me, long story short, and I started learning more from him and the other engineer that was there. And um, Do you remember what that single was, by the way? I do. It was a Carly Simon single. I was wondering if it was Carly Simon. I was trying to think of like... It was the Bond flick theme she did for your eyes only. Really? Uh, Spy Who Loved Me. Nobody does it better. Nobody does it better. You're right. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a classic. That's a big... So you cut like halfway through that song, The Lacquer. Not the, not the final because they went through some changes and they, they mixed it again. I don't remember, but you know, but I was involved in the very, very beginning. <laughs> That's great. So, um, I mean, it could have been yeah, like dis- so, disco duck or something. So, you know, at least it was something that you could look back on and go, Hey, that's a good song. We did that record too, actually. <laughs> did you really? I'm, yeah. I'm not surprised. Rick D's was right. Three, three floors above us. So we were in a high rise building. So he was, he was always down giving us crap. Um, so anyway, the story proceeds that, uh, long story short, the studio took a long time to build. We finally got it built. Um, we moved the mastering into the same complex. So we had mastering room in the front with the same equipment that I was working on when I hired on. And then they have this beautiful recording studio in the back. And um, some of the first people to book that studio were Quincy Jones. I mean, he did Off the Wall there. He did Rufus and Shaka Khan. He did... Uh, brothers johnson like kind of in rotation he was working all three records at the same time but off the wall you know that became kind of a big record right (laughs) yeah and bernie ended up uh, mastering that one if i remember correctly that's true he did but the i was the story the part of the story that the subtext is uh that brick wall that michael's up against on the cover of that record that was the hallway in our studio Wow. So they just did, did, did he just have his photographer do the shoot there or was yep. it just sort of someday they was just like, Hey, take a picture of me here. No, he did. They did a shoot there. And then they obviously embellished the wall a little more because it didn't have all that graffiti on it. Yeah. That kind of stuff was going on there. So they were, those kind of people were there in a brand new studio unproven and it came out great. Well, anyway, long story short, I, I, tapped Alan on the shoulder one day to say, Hey, you remember, I don't really want to be doing this. I want to be back there in the studio. And he goes, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. I originally like a year and a half ago, I wanted to be recording studio uh, engineer. I didn't want to, you know, mastering is not where I'm centered. And he, and he made me a deal. He said, look, he says, you stick it out here in mastering for another year. And if you still want to go back there, you have my blessing. And he knew because he saw what was going on in mastering that my clientele was growing like leaps and bounds. And I was starting to do some top 20 records, you know, to on the chart kind of thing. I was doing a lot of stuff for Motown and then did a little record for a guy named Rick James called the uh, super freak. And that was a big one. Yeah. And that one went number one. Um, and then, uh, and then another record that I did for Blondie called Call Me um, went to number one. And that was my first number one record was Call Me. And uh, he knew. He knew my, there was no way I was going to walk away from all these clients. I was, I was doing really well, you know, from a career point of view. So I stayed. Were you enjoying the actual work of it? Like just you know, yeah. making it sound the way it sounded? Yeah, that and, and interacting with all these fun people was was priceless 
<laughs> I mean, it was worth the price of admission. It was great. And uh, being around, you know, superstars and all that kind of stuff was, uh, was a lot of fun. What were those interactions like? Oh, tons of war stories. I could go on forever. Um, depends on the person. Some of them were, most of them, I would say were generally really fun and, and, and well accepted and everything. Everybody had a good time, but you know, there's always one somewhere in your career that goes, Oh crap. And you got it. You know, they give you, they give you problems. All right. Who is that? Uh, I, I don't want to say. And plus it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, it was a long time ago. It's a though. learning experience. Let's put it that way. It was very educational for me because it, it helped me, you know, in the future, it helped me now. To Were learn. the artists involved in the mastering or was it the, the producers Sometimes. or both? Sometimes or the whole group in the case of Rick, he brought his whole group in and party girls. <laughs> it was a whole scene. So they were all in the studio while you were mastering super freak. Yep. Yep. Was that distracting? Yep. Smoking <laughs> pot and, you know, doing blow. I mean, it was nuts. It was nuts, but that was the time. That was the time. And, you know, there was some amazing music that came out of that. Not that I'm condoning drug use, but you know, there was a lot of great music that came out of that, that time era. When you heard super freak and some of these others, did you think, Oh, that's a hit or do you, are you just kind of in that, you know, I need to make the sound this way and get these levels. Right. I think it was more scientific at that point. I, I, I didn't learn that little piece of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, ingenuity, if you will, until later, I kind of could pick out stuff. I mean, when, I, when we started working with Michael a lot, he definitely knew there was special stuff happening. <laughs> it was, it was magic. Definitely. Bernie was talking about how, uh, off the wall is a better sounding record than thriller because off the wall was on quarter inch tape and thriller was on half inch tape and that it seems counterintuitive, but the quarter inch tape sounded better. It's not really counterintuitive if you if you know more about uh, quarter inch and analog. The, the right. Stuff. But I don't know if we want to go down that road right now. But there there um, is some logic to it. Yeah, no, he made it he made it logical, but it was like it was counterintuitive to me, who was just like, well, big has more information, but uh, that wasn't <laughs> nope. that's not how it works. No. Nope. Um, was there something about cutting that kind of music that? I don't know, trained you in a certain way as opposed to if you were doing like all, you know, kind of folk stuff at the time or headbanger stuff or whatever, like, like that, like those records were so, the, the sound had to be so impactful because they were trying to get people to move on a dance floor. And I'm just wondering if that's a different approach than when you're trying to make, you know, like later when you've done, you know, Joni Mitchell stuff, you're trying to make it sound pristine, but it's not that kind of punchy thing. Uh, you, you, I think you're talking about or asking about um, working in different genres from a mastering point of view. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard sometimes, uh, especially if it's a genre that you don't really identify with. You kind of have to put your opinion on the table and forget about it and do your job. And it's not always the easiest thing, that's for sure. Um, I think think more what happens for mastering people is that you happen to have a record that's really successful in a given genre and you kind of get known for that for a while <laughs> for instance 
uh, Alanis Morissette. After I did her, her few projects, I was getting all these Alanis Morissette wannabe Canadian rock singers, male, female, whatever. It was interesting. And it was all because of her records. They all thought I could, you know, I was the magic icing that made her, you know, what she is and, or was. And, uh, you know, they, you could give that to them too. turn that right knob and you got it. Well, that doesn't really work, obviously. Now, are these the studios approaching you or are these the artists themselves requesting you? Artists. So the artists will have like a studio. Presumably they'll have a label. I don't mean studio, but I'm studios. But they'll have like a label and the label will say, okay, you want Chris Bellman, we'll get him for you. Or they'll just, or the artist will approach you, you know, him or herself and say, I want you to do this. Both, all of the above. It's all happened numerous ways. In those days, more, more through management or label. Uh, they would reach out and they, and, and if you uh, had worked with them previously, then you're more likely to get another shot at their next record, especially if, it, if the last one did well. Who were who the artists who were particularly kind of knowledgeable and involved in this where like they would be, not only would they be in the room, but they would be say, Hey, why don't you try this? Or I'd like it to sound like that. They were sort of more specific in what they wanted. Um. I would say the immature ones. <laughs> and so I those mean, are the I, bigger pains and those are the bigger pains in the ass of the ones. Right, that are the you know, the we need some are, more base. The people that are pros tend to let you do what you do. And then they listen to it, not in your environment, in their environment. Key, very important because they have to hear it in something that they're familiar with, whether it's their studio or their car, their living room, whatever, but they don't necessarily know my room. So they're kind of at the mercy of me doing what I do. And, um, and then of course they, um, listen and they make comment and sometimes you nail it. And sometimes like, Oh, we want to, you know, the third song, second verse, you know, can you just bring my vocal up a little bit? You know, you get into those little kind of details and things um, that once that's all satisfied, then they're good. The pros, the people that have gone through that process before kind of know what they can do and what they can't do in mastering. Um, um, but then there are the newbies uh, that don't know what you can do and you get requests for things that are impossible for mastering to accomplish. So what happens when one of those newbies directs you to do something that you know will make it sound worse? Do you have to do it because, you know, you're reporting to them or can you just be like, no, nope, I'm not doing that? Uh, I don't think I've ever said I can't do it. I would say tell them that I would suggest that that's probably not the right direction to go. I can give you, uh, I can do that, but I pretty much guarantee you're not going to like it. And then they're free to you know, take my opinion or not. So, But are there records out there that, that you sort of are like, I never liked that cut because they made me do stuff I didn't want to do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, your next question is going to be, uh, no, I'm not going to ask you. No, no. I've already learned. I've already learned in this conversation. I adapt. You're not going to tell me, but I just wanted to know that that exists. Probably. Yeah, there probably are. But uh, so, usually, usually it's because they've worn us out with like 27 changes on song two, you know, and <laughs> like, come on, you know, you're right back where you started. And, and now all of a sudden they like it. It's like, come on. <laughs> 
So, so what is the taste that you brought into this? Like, what was the stuff that you loved listening to when you started doing all of this? Oh, it's all, it's evolved. I mean, like I said, I was a classical pianist, so I brought kind of some strange classical uh, music kind of taste to, to stuff, more musicality, hopefully. Um, but then going way back when puberty hit and rock, and I discovered rock and roll, you know, kind of classical musical music kind of went out the, out the window. So I kind of grew up with, uh, you know, Van Halen and Led Zeppelin. That was kind of my era. Right. And Hendrix. You're, and, and you're, that, you're credited on 1984, I think, right? The Van Halen album. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you got, to, so you got to work with them. Yeah. Numerous times. What was that a thrill for you? Having liked them earlier? Yeah, that was, that was a blast. Um, and getting the call, uh, actually how that happened, the, the relationship started with, um, another producer named Glenn Ballard, who was instrumental. Who did Alanis Morris set. Correct. And he wound up getting hired because of the success of the records that he did. With Alanis, a lot of people were reaching out to him, and Van Halen was one of them because they were looking to resurrect their sound. So, and they wanted to do a um, a greatest hits package, or the label wanted them to do one, as well as uh, one, two, three new songs that he was going to produce. And so they did those three new songs, and then when it came time to master, Glenn said, "Well, I know the guy," and so that's how I got introduced. And wound up doing those records and putting that greatest hits package together, which did pretty well for a greatest hits package. Right. I, yeah. So, so was Eddie Van Halen one of those who would be in the studio kind of listening to what you were doing? Uh, in the beginning. And then once he had trust set up, he, he didn't want to come in. But he down the road from that, he called me personally a few years later when uh, they were going to remaster the first uh, five David Lee Roth records. And the label had taken it upon themselves to uh, start doing it on their own with I don't know where they were doing it or or with who they were doing it with. But Eddie called me and said, I don't like any of it. Can you do this? And I said, yeah, but I need the original tapes. He goes, no problem. Well, 24 hours later, I had five original Van Halen masters sitting in my studio. And um, we started working on them. And uh, long story short, you know, he, he was liking everything. So I guess that's, I that's a good day at work for you to get the, you know, as a Van Halen fan to get the master recording yeah. of those five albums. Yeah. And then, and then 10 years later, they got remastered again. And Eddie uh, said, well, what can we do different? I said, well, what do you mean different? He goes, well, you know, like give somebody new. We don't want to remix the records, but you know, if we thought maybe we could do something different in mastering, I said, well, you know, it was a hit before. What do you want to mess with a good thing for? And he goes, true, but he says, what, what do you got? And I said, well, I said, 80s records, 80s rock records are notoriously bass shy, so we could try some like more low end, you know, just to see. And he instantly said, well, we can't walk on the vocal and we can't walk on my guitar. And, this whole thing. and he started panicking. I was like, whoa, 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 back up. We can, oh, it's just an experiment. I'll give you a test. If you don't like it, I can certainly take it off. He goes, cool. So we did it. He hated it. He didn't like it. So I went back to what I had done like five or six years prior because I had all my notes and, uh, and that's what he, he loved. 
So that's the way it came out. <laughs> so, so is that technically a remaster if you basically do it the way you did it before? Yeah. It, well, it's a fine line. It's semantics. I mean, yeah, I'm remastering it because I have to do the transfer again. But I did have my notes from before so I could duplicate it. And, you know, you don't ever do something twice exactly the same. So there were some subtle changes probably. Cause you're still setting those levels and all that. You're not just sort of put, putting something in a computer and having it just come out the exact same. No, no computer. shifted twice in that, that it went from vinyl to cds slash digital and then it's gone back from digital cds to vinyl like what were those transitions like uh when the vinyl started waning um we were we were cutting well let me think how did it work out it a lot of times in early digital cd land we would cut the record vinyl wise and, and the digital was a, was a tape copy literally happening at the same time. Cause it was secondary. So they, they, they kind of, the labels kind of treated it. And so did we as a, as a tape copy basically, except you were just making a digital tape copy for, for CD purposes. And then as records kind of uh, faded down to an amount where they weren't cutting vinyl on every project, the CD sort of became the primary thing. And, you know, the rest is history on that. But um, so then we started paying more attention to digital and and how we could manipulate it or stay stay away from manipulating it, depending on what was called for. And then fast forward down um, or up uh, vinyl started coming back. And then we it it actually started with um, classic records, Mike Hobson. bringing in a lot of jazz, old jazz records and classical records. And um, uh, we started uh, doing a lot of vinyl for him. And then he stimulated that market of smaller boutique labels, licensing projects from labels, major labels, because they weren't interested in doing vinyl at that point. Um, And they were they were licensing quite a bit. And um, so we got a lot of that work and it was sort of audio file, if you will. And then Mike got bored, I think, with doing jazz and, and classical. And he started uh, looking into doing some rock records. And then he got he got into the Who catalog and uh, we wound up doing some Who. And he thought it'd be fun to try working with me since he had been uh, working with Bernie most, almost exclusively. And... Uh, it seemed to work out well. I seemed to do a lot of the rock stuff and Bernie did a lot of the, the jazz stuff. And then that kind of blossomed into the labels went, wait a minute, why are we licensing all these people to do this stuff when we can just do this ourselves? We used to do it. So why can't we do it now? <laughs> so they started not licensing and started reissuing their own product. Sony records, uh, uh, CBS, Epic were kind of all combined and BMG and Capital and all these, all these labels, you know, how they've been bought and sold amongst themselves. Right. 
they all started putting out their own vinyl again. So we luckily, as a mastering studio, we were on the receiving end of that as well um, in terms of work. And uh, and it, it worked out well. And we we have a very good lineage history, a good history of, of vinyl production. We seem to know what we're doing. So I guess we'll keep doing it. <laughs> when, you, when you're doing those uh, Who albums in the midst of probably, I assume, a lot of CDs, was that was that fun for you? Were you like, oh, I like doing this more than the digital stuff? Yeah, it started, it kind of evolved into that. I kind of enjoy the vinyl side of it. One, I'm a vinyl head. I, I, I you know, I only play vinyl pretty much, except in my car, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I started saying, well, you know what? We're so busy doing just vinyl. Why don't I just like make sure that we do do the best work here and keep keep doing that. So the, vinyl has turned into probably 85% of my workload. Does it take more time to master something on vinyl than something for CD? Sometimes. Um, if you have various problems going to, to lacquer that you wouldn't have going to digital. Digital pretty much handles anything you throw at it. Vinyl is, a, is another story. You know, it has parameters. It has uh, limitations that you have to deal with. Um, but that being said, it still can be a very, very good product um, if done the right way. So doing that sometimes can can run into time trying to figure out issues to, to get it to cut clean. It's funny because when, when CDs came out, you know, it's like, oh, it's the new technology. So I would start getting CDs of records that I only own, already owned. I mean, I never, I never unhooked my turntable. I always had the turntable, but I had the CD player and, you know, yeah. didn't, didn't have a little pops on it that I had on my records that I'd played a hundred to 300 times. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then there'd be like the next generation of that record, the, the CD were like, oh no, you know, those first, you know, Columbia Elvis Costello CD sounded terrible, but now the Ryko discs ones sound good. And yeah. then he did the Rhino ones and those sound even better, maybe. And you know, the Who, I mean, those came out a whole bunch of times too. And then you get through all the different CD uh, iterations and then you're back to, oh, but now there's the the Chris Bellman cut on vinyl, but now there's the this other cut on vinyl. Now they're the half-speed master Abbey Road yeah. ones that are not AAA, but they're this other. And it's it you end up like having the choice of buying like 10 different versions of the same record. Yeah, which any, is an, as a collector, it just drives you mad and, and your pocketbook goes down like crazy. Yeah, it's been bad. I, yeah. I could speak from personal experience. Do you have any sort of rules of thumb on like how to find the definitive version of something? No, to be <laughs> honest, I don't. And you know what? To be honest, I don't buy a lot of records. I get given a lot of records and, you know, uh, not that I'm bragging, but I haven't really had to feel the, the financial burden of buying a $50 record. <laughs> well, that's good. You're in the right profession for that. Yeah. When I was, when I was reviewing stuff for the Chicago Tribune, I used to get sent. So I have a lot of CDs uh, that I used to get sent. And that was always nice because I was reviewing a lot of them. Um, right. But now I'm, I'm on my own when it comes to the $30 LPs now and the, right. the new version of the same album that I already have four copies yeah. of. Yeah, like $700 worth of the same product. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, so, and, and there's also, you know, I mean, people, obviously they look for the triple, triple A. Um, do you think that it's, 
essential to, you know, if you're going to have like an improvement over the original for it to be analog all the way through, or can it actually sound just as well if there's like a really good high def digital step somewhere in the process? Um, that's a tough question with many answers. Um, and I know it's been debated a lot. I think it's kind of apples and oranges again. It's like the flavors. Um, if you have a, a analog source piece of vinyl and then you have the exact same thing digitally sourced could you hear the difference if you played them side by side probably um and if you didn't then either your system wasn't up to the the, the small differences or you can't hear it or there wasn't that much of a difference it, it depends on what feels right to you um but if you're just working on superstition i think that's kind of a waste of time in terms of, oh, it must be analog, you know. That being said, there's some records out there, i.e. the Van Halen catalog, which were created with vinyl in mind originally. They were never known, they, you know, digital didn't exist when those records were made. Um, so I personally think those records kick ass on vinyl and they don't sound so good on digital. I mean, yeah, they're okay, but they don't have the same impact. They don't have the same soundstage. They don't have a lot of stuff that the vinyl just does so well for that record, for those records. And um, so what I'm saying is some some projects, I think, lend themselves to certain mediums better than others. Right. When you're, when you're working on, uh, you know, remaster of something that's been done before by, you know, Bernie Kevin. or Kevin, Kevin Gray or <laughs> like, like, do you go back and listen to the other versions or do you just sort of take the tapes and do what you want to do with it and not refer to it? Uh, okay. Well, that gets to how I, my process works. And generally I'll just tell you when I am set up to do a, a remaster of something, I try to get the original version to hear what was happening, not just the tapes. I mean, if I'm lucky enough to get the actual tapes, that's 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 a win. And then if I'm lucky enough to also have the original release, uh, maybe it's vinyl, maybe it's CD, but I have something to reference to and say, OK, this is where they took this project, because a lot of times in mastering the tapes sound what they sound like flat and what they sound like um, uh, mastered are fairly radically different sometimes. Right. So it's a process. And so I always like to reference the original. And when I do that, I, I get the tape back to kind of matching that reference. And then I put the reference away and I just listen to what I've done, what I've notated and what I've come up with in terms of matching that project. And then I make decisions based on whether I think I can make it better does it need to be different? Does it need more bass? Does it need whatever? You know, I did, I make all those decisions and then I make those final notes and then that's my remastered version. Do you apply sort of a current aesthetic to a recording? So for instance, if something was recorded and, you know, mastered at a time where they were trying to make it really bright for am radio or something like that fm radio are you are you sort of thinking well that's not the purpose of this anymore so it doesn't need to sound like that as opposed to well that's what it sounded like then and that's what people are used to uh good question i think 
it's if it's a well-known record, for instance, it's the kiss of death to make it something completely different than what it was. Because people are used to it. Good or bad is 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 out the window. It's it becomes, well, if I make this thing really bassy because or add a lot of bass because gee, it just didn't have any bass at all. Well, yeah, some people are gonna like it, but a lot of people are gonna go, what the hell? You know, that's not the way I know this record. So you, you, you walk a fine line on how much you want to adjust something, um, even, even if you see it as a discrepancy. Well, yeah, you can slide in a little more low end, but gee, I can't go as far as I really think it should go because it would be too radically different. So you'll go back to the original master as well as having the original tapes, hopefully. Uh, will you go back to you know, the Kevin Gray remaster before you do the Bellman cut just to hear what he did with it? No, nah, not really. No offense, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin does great work. Uh, you know, I love a lot of his jazz stuff. No, I don't seek out any particular person's mastering. I just try to get the original. If Kevin happened to re- have done the original, then so be it. Well, so let's say there's like a, you know, a Joni Mitchell album. This might be true, but uh, where there's like the, the Bernie Grunman cut, like the original Bernie cut, there's the yep. Kevin Gray you know, remaster. And then there's the Chris Bellman cut. Is there going to be something distinct about each of your versions because of the way you approach things? And what is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, some of the Johnny Mitchell stuff, I was competing with Bernie, the guy that pays me. Right. (laughs) So that's kind of an interesting scenario. Um, in that, in those cases, I actually, we found Bernie's old notes and, and he gave them to me and he said, don't use these, but here they are. <laughs> so I was able to look at some of his notes and go, well, okay, that's cool. But that's not cool now because they were trying to do X, Y, Z to this, this record. And they don't want to go that way now. You know, they made a conscious decision to tell me to do something a little different. So in, in, in that case, it was limiting, as I recall. So they didn't want to have a bunch of limiting on, on those records, which they didn't really need it in hindsight. So, yeah, it's always interesting um, revisiting something that you did yourself. I've had that experience, too. Um, for instance, they asked me to redo a Jagged Little Pill and gave me the original tapes that I had worked on back when I did it. So there's my, all my scribbling on the tapes, right. blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at myself going, okay, this is going to be interesting. What do I do different? Found my old notes. We keep everything. Um, and, you know, kind of use them as a guide kind of did, you know, 80% of what I did before. And, you know, 20%, maybe a little slightly different. Um, yeah, it happens. It's a strange thing. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like looking at, you know, stuff you wrote 30 years ago for me, at least. And you'll be like, oh, this is good. Oh, why did I do this? Oh, this could be yeah. cut. I mean, yeah. is it is it that like that? And and what was the sort of stuff that you thought, oh, I, you know, I would not do that now? Yeah, that, I think that happens. Um, I would not do that now. <laughs> Probably uh, the things that come to mind are limiting, for instance. Uh, limiting was much used quite a bit you know, back when I was starting out um, and not so much now in terms of buying, um, not as, not as much as it was used then because that was the sound then, 
Um, now people want vinyl that um, is more user uh, listener friendly, if you will, and not trying to just sound like a like a forty five on the radio kind of kind of thing. So there's diff- slightly different approaches. Depends on the genre, though. They're they're producers who are known for different uh, sounds, like you know, like like this drum sound you'll associate with this producer or this guitar sound with this producer. Are there sort of tells with mastering engineers where there, there'll be a certain sort of thing that you guys do that maybe the untrained ear doesn't get. And you'll be like, Oh, that's a Bernie. That's a Kevin. That's a Chris. I don't think so. To be honest, I couldn't even think of anything that would come up like that. I mean, I could be wrong, but, uh, I don't think everything I do sounds the same, thankfully, and better not, you know, any of us do that. If we are all turning the same knob on, on every project, then something's wrong. If you had to just sort of sum up your philosophy in like a sentence, I mean, you've basically been saying it, but I'm just going to do this anyway as an exercise. Like, what would you say your philosophy on approaching these recordings is? Uh, try to stay out of the way as much as possible. Your job in the end is to get it to, to trans, you're trying to make the best possible transfer from one medium to another, and then giving the listener of that second medium uh, the the best uh, representation of of what that artist intended. How often do you get something where you're like, I just can't stand this music? Um, and do you ever like turn down something because you're just like, I just can't abide it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it happens where I'm not rocking out to it, obviously, and turn it down a little bit after I figured out what I've done and I'm just doing the transfer. Yeah, I, just, I imagine I don't listen to it at uh, Warp 11. <laughs> How long does it take you to master one? album final two sides yes. um, if i'm setting it up from the from scratch if i'm not well that's a complicated question because if you're not doing a test where you cut a reference and then somebody yeah uh critiques it for you if you're skipping that part of it and you're just setting it up and then cutting a couple of lacquers that's probably three to four hours depending on the project will you do more than one a day oh yeah yeah. Like how many, how many will you do? Like how many do you do a, lot, a week in general? A lot of times I'll spend a day just setting things up and test cutting them. And then I come in the next day and I cut them. So I'll, I'll spend like a whole day, you know, I'll spend eight, seven, eight hours just EQing and setting up things, taking notes, writing myself scripts. And then I come in the next day and I bang out the lacquers. So, so will you work on like a couple projects at once? Like where you're sort of setting it up and then you'll come in the next day and you'll go this one now this one yeah depending on the schedule and and if they have pressing set up and everything uh yeah uh but at any given moment i'm juggling you know throughout the week i'm juggling i don't know 15 to 20 projects at least and what's the what's the um split between new albums and you know stuff where you're sort of going back to the old tapes like i noticed for instance the two of the you know, newer albums that I bought this year, uh, Spoons, Lucifer on the Sofa, and uh, Elvis Costello and the Imposters, Boy Named If, you did both of those versus, you know, time to go back and do oh. the Tom Petty project again. It changes all the time. That's a, that's a fluid 
fluid question, if you will, with a fluid answer, because it's, it's just, it's uh, schedule dependent and uh, you know, what, what somebody's called in to do. I do a lot of work for Rhino. So a lot of that stuff is, is on the older side, obviously. Uh, but then we have the new stuff coming in that labels say, Hey, uh, you know, uh, Joe Schmo just did his new record and uh, you know, we need to cut vinyl on it. And it's a brand new record, you know? So there's that kind of stuff. See, there's another part to the business and mastering that I failed to mention. Um, there's, there's the projects that we EQ uh, and then we we master them and then we cut lacquers. And then there's a whole other part of the business where we weren't involved in the project, but we were sent files by another mastering engineer because the label wants to cut vinyl and that mastering engineer doesn't do vinyl. So, so we cut a lot of stuff for other mastering people. So for instance, like the Elvis Costello album, I mean, I've read about how they recorded that all remotely. Like Elvis Costello was in one city and Pete Thomas was doing the drums in another city. And so, so clearly it wasn't like an all analog production because they're putting it together like that. What is it that you're getting at the point where you're actually cutting that vinyl? Probably some kind of files from some mastering engineer. I, I think I did not master that record. I just cut the lacquers, I, if memory serves me. So somebody else who I don't even know uh, sends the label files. Uh, the label says, oh, we need to get lacquers cut. They send the files to me or somebody like me. And they say, here's the parts numbers. Uh, we need two sets and they need to go to, you know, optimal in Germany. I go, okay. So how long does that take? Like, what's the work involved in just cutting the lacquer when you're not mastering it? Uh, about an hour to set it up and then the, the running time of the sides. So a couple hours, maybe if there's two sides, if it's four, if it's a double album, then, you know, double. Right. So what is it you're setting up? Like, what are you bringing to that where they're coming to you and they say, we need you to cut the lacquers. Uh, I'm staying out of the way of what, of whoever mastered the project. So basically, um, I'm setting a level that I could get on the, on the vinyl safely and effectively. And then I'm checking for DSing if it's needed and that's it. And I make a cut. I and don't then, do any EQ. I don't do any limiting. I don't touch it. Even if, even if I hear it and I go, wow, this is really messed up. It is what it is. They approve that. So I, who, you know, it's not up to me to like go changing it. So that's not the job. The job is cutting the lacquers from what they're that's giving. True. That's true. I do a lot of work for Bob Ludwig, for instance, a lot of vinyl for him cutting because he doesn't cut any longer. So he sends me high res files and, you know, he knows that I stay away from his files other than setting a level and some occasional DSing. And uh, he likes the sound of our system. And, you know, we, I get a lot of business that way. So that's a whole other side of the business that we didn't even see coming when we started cutting all this vinyl for labels and things. We're like, wow. Now all of a sudden we're getting stuff from other mastering people as well. So it was a win-win. That's why we're so busy. What's your feeling on where the record is pressed? Do you get involved in that at all? And how big of a difference does that make? It makes a huge difference. And unfortunately, um, there are some that are not so good and they're, they are known for it. And usually it's a uh, consistency of, of, of quality. There are places that I won't mention that I generally feel most of the time I don't, I hate their projects, their, their, uh, their product. But then every so often you get one to go, wow, 
what did they do? This one's awesome. And you, you just never know. Um, but that being said, then there are other uh, pressing plants that are more consistently hitting it out of the park. Those tend to get recommended much more, obviously. I do get involved in certain projects, i.e. The, uh, the, the Tom Petty estate projects that we did. Um, they want my opinion. And I'm just one of the cogs in the wheel. Um, but in terms of vinyl, I, I have a little bit of say-so, although Warner Brothers generally has most of the cloud in that decision because uh, especially lately, uh, pressing time is at a premium all over the world. But there's so much product product going on that they literally have to reserve press time. And if they miss it, they're screwed. So there's a lot of pressure to get the lacquers to the plant to meet that press that press reservation, if you will. Right. Um, and some of the lead times now are like six months, five to six months. So consequently, you're waiting that long to get your your lacquers processed, and then you're waiting, you know, another week or two for test pressings, and then God forbid there's a problem, you got to do it again. It's a tough. It's a tough thing. Is there an era of recordings that you think, I, I don't know, kind of translates the best to, you know, when you're reapproaching it now? I don't know. I like the 80s, to be honest. But I Depends like the which... music in the 80s, so that's probably not a fair fair answer. The 80s covers a lot of ground, so it's so it sort of really depends on, like, like some 80s stuff sounds fantastic, and then some 80s stuff sounds like totally Tom Like Kansas. any other era. And, and yeah, the, also so. the 80s... Uh, was the kind of the advent of recording technology, uh, the consoles, the SSL consoles, which had a lot of limiting, easily accessible limiting per channel. So that kind of got ingrained into uh, the sonics of recordings in those days. And uh, the dynamics changed when that happened, of course, in recordings. The dynamics are kind of smaller compared to, say, something done in the 60s or even the 50s where dynamics were king um just a whole different uh different genre obviously but also right. different, different technology was utilized when you go back to those you know something from the 80s do you try to kind of expand that sound a little bit because it's been limited at the time or is this just sort of like that's just the way it was recorded and that's what you're dealing with yeah no you can't if it's if it's inherent in the recording there's not anything you can do mastering wise to undo that um, you, you deal with it on its own merits. Um, and that was, if it was inherent in that recording, then it's there to stay. And that's what you have to deal with. Any thoughts on colored vinyl? I think it's, it's a gimmick for, for vinyl fans. I don't particularly think it sounds all that good compared to uh, translucent or black. So you think, so translucent is that, because I've seen somewhere it's just like the straight clear uh, record. That one's, that's good or the black, but not maybe the, the spider Yeah, mostly the black I th say because it's, it's, it's familiar, but to be honest, the translucent has uh, less uh, particles of contaminant, if you will, in the formula. So it's, it's technically pure. So if they do a good press, it, it can be nice. The other colored stuff has so many different particulates in the vinyl that you're just you're you're barking up the wrong tree in terms of of, of a quiet pressing, shall we say? <laughs> right. 
And any thoughts on like 33 versus 45? Like, is it, is it, you know, should you gravitate to the, you know, the single album that's now a double album, you know, at, at 45 RPM? 45 will most definitely sound better, but from a listener's point of view, it's some people have a problem with getting up after every 12 to 15 minutes versus, you know, 20. So there is that, um, if you're, if you're not adverse to, uh, flipping the sides a little more often, uh, the 45 will definitely give you something a lot sweeter. If you had to run out of your house, uh, in some sort of, you know, crazy emergency and you could only grab one record, what would it be? <laughs> That's a tough question. Especially since I'm so unorganized, I wouldn't know where to find the one <laughs> I'm looking for. Uh, probably one of the Beatles records, you know, Sergeant Pepper or something, something in that vein. And would it be like the mono pressing or would you go with the stereo? Uh, I believe I only had the stereo at the time. So yeah. you don't have the mono. You should get I the mono. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Didn't want to buy it. <laughs> it's a really interesting. If you're if you're really super familiar with the stereo mix of Sgt. Pepper, it's fascinating to hear the mono. Well, actually, wait a minute. The original was it mono? They're both. It came out on both. Yeah, I think most so. people have, most I people have the stereo. Have the stereo. Most yeah. people have the stereo. She's she's leaving home is at a different speed in the mono. Mm. It's a little because it's slowed down on the stereo. When you hear it on the mono, you're like, oh, that's what it should sound like because it's like. I'm not going to start singing like Paul, but yeah, it's like Wednesday morning. But then on the mind, I was like, Wednesday morning. You're like, oh, uh, that sounds like Paul. Anyway, yeah. th that that's a little treat for our listeners. That's like mm. uh, kind of blue, you know, had some speed discrepancies in it too. Interesting. Do you, do you have like a very fancy setup at home with like the big expensive turntable and speakers and everything? I, expensive is relative. I certainly didn't spend, you know, $10,000 on my turntable or anything. I have a JVC, uh, quartz locked, uh, I remember the model number. It's probably the three, $400 turn turntable probably. And I had some old speakers that I've had for like forever that are, they're kind of odd, but I kind of like them because they're different than, than like a JBL. Um, and it's not about them. Um, well, they're, they're Nakamichi speakers. Oh, I had a so, Nakamichi tape back when Nakamichi and Mitsubishi were one company. So the, consequently the tags on the front say Nakamichi Mitsubishi, which is <laughs> strange. And they're, they're actually kind of a cool piece of furniture. They're mahogany and they're about, I don't know, waist high and about three feet wide. They're kind of big, a little bit big. And they're, um, I think they're, yeah, they're 12 inch cones inside and they're kind of jute boxy sounding for lack of a better adjective. And it's kind of fun in the living room when you crank it up, you know, they kind of do a, a sweet thing. And then, uh, what do I have? I have a, uh, an old, um, Mac amp driving those puppies mm. from the turntable. And then a custom old preamp that one of my guys at, at the uh, studio uh, kind of rigged up for me. And that's about it. It's pretty, pretty simplistic, to be honest. Nice. What do you do to protect your ears? I don't listen really loud. You in the studio? Or just I in general? Listen. Do, you go, do you go to concerts? Not too much anymore. And if I do, I wear plugs. 
to be honest. Yeah. I learned that a long time ago. Hey, just when I was young and stupid, I saw Hendrix at the whiskey. Wow. So that's not stupid to me. Well, it's cool, but it was also louder than God. I mean, it was just insane. And, uh, and I was like five feet from one of his speakers. So it was like kind of stupid. So I was deaf for like days after that. So long story short, I didn't obviously know that I was going to be in the business then I was just a fan and, you know, being stupid, but, uh, now, yeah, I, I take care of my ears as much. I used to scuba dive. I don't do that anymore either. Yeah. I've, I've done earplugs for years because especially concerts, cause you just can't yeah. do that otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's my uh, livelihood about what back in the, as soon as I decided that I was, I guess I'm a mastering engineer. I'm staying in this profession. I better, you know, take care of myself. So do you, uh, do you still play piano? A little, not, not too much, to be honest. I tinker around. I kept it going long enough to sort of teach my, uh, my daughter how to play back when she was young. And, uh, so I, it was fun. I still have the piano. I just don't sit down to it too much. Nice. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate this. This was great. I hope you, uh, you enjoyed it, but I, I, I got a lot out of this and, uh, it was, it was great to talk to you and put the, put the name and the face and the voice to the, all the Bellman cuts that I have. Cause I have a fair, pretty good number of them and they all sound fantastic. So, well, I appreciate that. And um, thanks for listening. That's it for episode 37 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Chris Bellman for all of the insights into what makes a Bellman cut. You can learn more about him at his website, chrisbellman.com, and you can work with him at Bernie Grunman Mastering. Go to berniegrunmanmastering.com and click on Engineers. Meanwhile, look for Bellman's name on new albums, as well as reissues by Alton John, Tom Petty, the Everly Brothers, and many others. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.